Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower, who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. This episode was recorded on Friday the 24th of September, the week which saw the return of the Chelsea Flower Show after a, let's say, a prolonged absence. It was such a treat to be back with a beautifully mellow autumnal show. And, all things being well, Chelsea will be back in May 2022. So, also this week, after Chelsea, I drove to Bristol to chat to my guest this week, garden broadcaster, designer, garden writer, and indeed garden lots of things, Naomi Slade. Naomi is probably best known for her writing and a string of successful books. I'm fond of my Snowdrop book. I like it an awful lot. I'm very proud of how that turned out, given that it sort of dropped out of the sky and I hit the ground running and put out everything I could think of and everything else I could find out. But I love, love, love my Orchard book and Orchard Odyssey because that, it's, it's a passion project. Sat in Naomi's sunny, urban Bristol garden, I asked her if she'd mind describing her garden to us all. So my garden um, is frankly awkward, but it's very, very relatable. So it's tiny, it's 33 feet by 18, and it slopes downhill from the house, so it drops uh, sharply off the, off the deck, and then it slopes away from that. So actually from the house you look over it, um, that it's north-facing, there's no sun at all from uh, the middle of November until the end of February and the soil is incredibly heavy, slightly alkaline clay. So um, it's a little bit unprepossessing from a gardening perspective. And how long have you been here, and, and what was the garden like when you first came here? Well, we arrived in the middle of 2017, and there are always compromises when you move house. So in our case, despite what I do for a living, uh, the garden was the compromise. <laughs> so it was astroturf, it was, it was fake grass, and it was horrible. So there are a few things which are nice. There's this beautiful big rose, um, Madame Alfred Carrier, which is beautifully scented. I like that one. A couple of pear trees and a plum. And there's a ginormous spirea and a couple of raised beds. But there wasn't really anything to write home about. Um, and the fake grass was, was horrendous. Um, so it was squishy when it was wet it got too hot when it was sunny sunny mm. and if you walked on it with bare feet after it had been raining and then it was sunny then it was too hot and squishy it was absolutely but, revolting <laughs> now what my listeners may not know about you is you are a garden designer as well yes yes i am in fact i'm gardening lots of things yep. so um i actually came into gardening as um in a role where I was organising shows and events. So the second show I ever organised anything was was Chelsea. Um, and That's a yes. big start as well, to go yes. straight into Chelsea. Yes, That's... I mean, other people sort of made the groundwork, admittedly, but yeah. um, I started in January, we did more than then we did Chelsea. And over the subsequent four years at Witch Gardening magazine, I did 64 events. So um, quite... A lot of organising things in gardens and, and, and building stuff and designing stuff and making things look great and making people happy. So when you first came to the garden, did you have an idea straight away that like, this is what I could do with this garden or did you need to sit down and have a think about what you were going to do? This garden here, well when I worked around all the houses we looked at with all the gardens, um, obviously you look at with a house 
by the garden too and you think about what you might do with it mm. but in the full knowledge that you're actually going to have to sit in it with a cup of tea you have to see where the light falls you're going to have to see what its foibles are you have to find out what soil you've got what i had was I mean, this this grass had gone down very very well so there was membrane there was sand there was hardcore um there's quite a lot of concrete so i ended up actually hewing the garden out of compacted earth and rock um <laughs> But what I wanted was something immersive. What I wanted was something which had everything I wanted. I wanted like a big garden in a small space. I wanted fruit and flowers to cut and wildlife and a greenhouse and grow your own. Um, and every facet of gardening life in, in, in microcosm. And I guess as a designer, that's where the real challenge is with a small urban garden. When you have a checklist of things you want to include is how do you get that garden to work to include everything on your checklist and for it to work and be, as you say, immersive? Very, very carefully. Um, <laughs> and it is to a certain degree. I've designed, I designed it, it in the first place. I reiterated that design. I thought about how the, the landscaping would work. Um, you know, things like you know how the water runs when it when when it rains yeah. it rains heavily I, I want it to soak into the ground i want to be able to use that water um and on the one hand it ends up absolutely crammed with everything it's my workplace it's my lab it's my passion on the other hand it has to be a little bit restrained in terms of what's going on because otherwise because i want i want something that looks lovely mm. not just complete free-for-all mayhem Yes, because we talked about this checklist of things you want. You want fruit, you want flowers, you want a growing space, you want a greenhouse. But you also use this garden for your column as well. I do, I do. I've got a fortnightly column in Garden News magazine, um, which I think people like because it's it's relatable. Mm. And everybody has difficult gardens, and often they're very small. Um, everybody has difficult problems. So, I mean, I, I do things which other people need um perhaps inspiration for solutions so you know if my roses have black spot or eat, get eaten by rose sawfly I go oh goodness me I've got this this is what I'm going to do um, so sometimes it's inspirational sometimes it's design based sometimes it's environmental sometimes it's lifestyle um, but it's all things that I'm doing in real life for my actual garden because that's how I want it to be and how do your readers relate to that? Because it is a relatable garden. It's, it's a real garden. What sort of feedback do you get from your readers? Um, well, they can be quite quiet, but when I do get feedback, it tends to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't to ring me up. Sometimes I get nice comments on, on social media and so on. Um, but it's, they are, they're real problems. They're mm. real problems that everybody has. And there is a great tendency... Um, in the media, in magazines, on social media, for everything to be perfect, you know. And my life's not perfect. My life is sort of slightly chaotic and it can be untidy in corners. I get pests and diseases like everybody else does. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes the slug eats my, slugs eat my dahlias too. So, but, but I think what I have is a lifetime experience of, of gardening um, and a whole career in... in, in talking about gardening so I, I, I hopefully can give people some confidence to tackle those problems. I think from a personal perspective that's what's really important because we live in this potentially perfect social media world where people will only share the very best of their gardens 
and what's behind the camera might not be quite so glamorous as what they're showing in front of the camera. So I think the relatability thing is so important for, for new gardeners, for novice gardeners, who are probably a little bit apprehensive seeing all these glorious gardens on their social media. I think that's, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I, I won't lie, I, I move all the really scruffy bits to behind, <laughs> behind the camera. Of course, everybody does. Yeah, of course. On the other hand... I do think that gardening needs to be accessible. It needs to be relatable. I think that, you know, when I was growing up, gardeners very often were terribly, terribly well informed and, you know, one could never aspire. Mm. But actually, what's lovely at the moment is that everybody's having a go. Everybody wants to get in and get their hands dirty. And it's not magic, it's years of practice and understanding how it works. Mm. So explaining how it works, explaining the science, explaining the horticulture, explaining the conditions, and just encouraging people to get in, and also doing things like buy good plants rather than half-dead things off supermarket shelves. Because yeah. one of my biggest bugbears is when plants are up for sale um, in less specialist retailers, let's call them, um, <laughs> and people go, oh, I'd love some flowers, and they buy something, and no, no, it may be dead before it's off the shelf, mm, but it really mm. shouldn't be there. So I think if people want to get into gardening, those of us who've been doing it for a while need to give them every encouragement. And what I like sitting here now, I've got a chocolate cosmos next to me, heleniums, we've got geraniums. It's a, there's a real mix. We've got the uh, crab apples, beautiful red crab apple, crab apple. Which one is that? Is that red sentinel? Red, red obelisk. Red behind, obelisk. Behind you is red sentinel. So it is. Yes, that one's Melus exargentii, uh, red sentinel, and says so that one. That one's red obelisk. Then I've got uh, three pears, um, about five apples. I mean, I'm, I'm very big on my fruit, so again, fruit in small spaces is very much my thing. And I think what's lovely at this time of year, you come into the garden, the first thing I saw was the red crab apple. Uh, just the colour, the pears, absolutely laden with pears behind me. Uh, you've got your sambucus black lace yes yes which makes a lovely foil to all sorts of things you can put bright pink or white in front of it you can put bright orange in front of it uh, and it's it's a very very good background plant that and of course the other thing I noticed when we walked on to the decking is you're not the only Naomi Slade in the garden today I am not no you're Galanthus yes Regine Okay, no, no, correct me on the pronunciation. We talked about this earlier. Galanthus Reginiolgi. Reginiolgi. Named after Queen Olga of Greece. And obviously one named and after me. you. So how did that come about and where did your love of snowdrops come from? I've always loved snowdrops, um, ever since I was very small. So, uh, even when I was, before I was 10 years old, I had a rabbit called Snowdrop. Um, oh. But when I was... Um, growing up partially in Wales I always knew there was more than one sort of snowdrop because the swathe of snowdrops that came up in the orchard flowered very much later than the ones that my grandmother had brought up from Somerset which mm. were at the end of the garden mm. and those were always there um, so I could pick a posy for them for my mum on February the 14th so those ones are always out on Valentine's Day. And so, sort of like there are so many snowdrops. Do you have other cultivars in the garden as well? Many, many, but I can't show you them because they're still oh, asleep. They're still asleep. <laughs> Any particular favourites amongst that? Um, well, obviously, uh, Galanthus um, Regina Yogi Naomi Slade are 
I'm very, very, very pleased with that. I mean, you kind of know that you've arrived in horticulture when somebody names a plant after you, for which I must absolutely thank uh, Joe Sharman at Monk's Silver Nursery. Um, I'm deeply honoured. So uh, how did that come about? Did, did they come to you and did they do they ask? or They did have it, to ask. Yeah, I was going to say. They're it's, rude it's, not to. It will, will vary, but I just wondered what is the sort of way forward with that? Um, well, I was asked to write a book, uh, The Plant Lover's Guide to Snowdrops, which... Is, is accessible and friendly and, and chats all about it. And I like to get my books proofread he- heavily to make right. sure that I don't mess anything up. Yeah. Um, and Joe elected to read it for me and he was incredibly helpful and we became friends. Um, and he's a very full-on snowdrop chap in East Anglia. And uh, when the book came out, we, we carried on chatting. And one day he said, would you, would you like a snowdrop named after you? And I was like, well, would I? <laughs> Silly <laughs> Absolutely. question. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, please, 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 could it be obvious and, and distinctive? And I, I thought I, I didn't think anything else of it. And about three weeks later, a little package came through the post. It was just three snowdrops with a label. It says, Galanthus reginiol hinemi slade. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> a real moment in your career to have a, a snowdrop named after you. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so any other plants in the offing? Have any other n- named plants coming your way? Uh, nobody has approached me about naming anything else after me. Um you, I'm, I'm easily findable if anybody does. Any <laughs> listeners want to name plants after me, then do get in touch. <laughs> now, obviously, you're a passionate plants person. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, just before we move on to the plants, the garden design side of things, for you, is there something that is more important in garden design? Is it about the, the plants? Is it about the hard landscaping? Is it about both for you? Do you have a style? Is there a Naomi Slade-type garden? That's a very interesting question. I mean, for me, it's all about the plants. Yeah. But um, the, the plants, and when you're designing a garden, if you don't think about the, the garden space and the garden, the hard landscaping where, where the plants are, it's a bit like going to the shops to buy all the food before you put the kitchen in. Mm-hmm. So, you, so, so for, for me, it's all about plants. And I do, I love them. I love them unreservedly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I, I studied biology, it's an environment, I love botany. And my personal style is it's loose and it's naturalistic, um, it's effusive, mm. I like it to be colourful, I like things to be happening all the time. It's strongly for wildlife. Um, I was heavily influenced as a child by um, people like Gerald Durrell and, and uh, David Attenborough. Okay. Um, and so there's a very strong environmental focus in what I do. So both in my own gardens and in other people's when I have the pleasure of designing those, I always include a compost bin, for example. I talk about water use. Mm. I want to include things for, for, for wildlife, look after the soil, put in a, a nice wood pile for, um, for beasties and, 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 um, yeah. and beetle larvae. So, uh, but but if, if required, if it seems appropriate, I can design very, very formal and crisp things because that's fun too. Mm, mm. Part of the, the pleasure of the art is its versatility. Yeah. And each one is, is, is a creation in its own right. So you know, I don't think necessarily one size fits all because that's not appropriate. Tell us about your 2012 garden. It was uh, the best in show, a gold medal winning garden, punk inspired, never mind the hollyhocks. How did that come about and why a punk inspired garden? I have punk tendencies, shall we say. <laughs> um, I like 
I like punk as an art form, not just the kind of scary youths with spiky hair who terrorise old ladies on street corners. Uh, I kind of missed punk slightly when I was growing up, but I've always liked the liked the idea. So the fact that it's it's poetry as well as being music, as well as being fashion. I mean, it's a, it's a whole culture, it's a whole art form, mm. which mm. Um, which is challenging and slightly anarchic, and. I'd never seen a punk show garden and I really felt it was time. And so what I did was create one. So there was a punk veg patch and there was, but I wanted to be very, very habitable and lifestyle-y as well. So I wanted to bring together the the colours and the vibrancy and the challenging quality and the kind of, you know, there were big gunnerers with rips in because that was, because I mean, there's nothing as punk as a gunner. Yeah, that is pretty punky. <laughs> and that, but it, and it has the spikes as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's those hot pink formiums and things. Um, just because it's a lot of fun. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for doing things for the hell of it. Now, as you said at the beginning of the conversation, you are a garden designer, writer, and garden many things. Is it frustrating that perhaps some people see you as just the garden writer? It is, because, as I mentioned earlier, that's not where I came in. Mm. I mean, I, I was actually managing rock bands when I applied for my job at Gardening Witch to do their shows and events. Um, and I then managed projects, I then designed gardens, I've done a lot of radio, I've presented on telly, I have just finished my sixth book, or is it my seventh book? To be honest, it's rude to lose count, isn't it? <laughs> but literally you catch me as I'm reading the last proofs. So yes, it is frustrating, um, because people don't necessarily ring me up for things that I could do quite easily. Mm. On the other hand... I write, I enjoy writing, I think it's lovely, um, and I find it I find it quite easy, so I'm not, not sorry to write, I just like doing other things too. At, at what stage in your life, going back, did you think that gardening might be a career for you, or, or was it not the case that you thought of gardening as a career? You say you were managing rock bands, at that time, was there a seed of, I need to get into this horticultural industry somehow or another? It was a healing, cathartic thing in some ways. I mean, I've always been into gardening. I ever since I was ever since I can remember anything, it was all been gardening and growing things and picking plums and sowing radishes and looking at these snowdrops. Was that uh, from your parents? Did that my, did my, that come from my, your parents? My parents, uh, my, my my botanical uncle, um, you know, people with gardens. And I've kind of adopted every garden I've ever come across in many mm. ways. Mm. Um, but I'd graduated and moved around the country a lot um, and had done a range of you know, fairly low-grade editorial jobs and things weren't really how I wanted them to be. So I moved home, um, terminated the relationship I was in, which wasn't working either, and spent a lot of time just trying to make sense of my life by making my mum's garden nice and mm. I making pots and I did the pruning um, and I started managing bands and life perked up and it seemed like a lot of fun um, and I was applying for sort of proper jobs in inverted commas at the same time and I saw this advert in The Guardian for this shows and events job on a, on a gardening magazine I looked at it like that looks, that looks amazing <laughs> I'm never going to get it um, so I didn't apply um, you and didn't then, apply? I didn't apply. And then two days later, my mother plonked it in front of me and I said, I found the best job for you. And it's oh. like, well, maybe it's a sign. So I did apply. And over out of over 100 applicants, I got it. 
So it clearly was a sign. And it felt yeah. like I'd come home. It felt like I'd been found and claimed by, by, by a world that knew that I should be there, is how it felt. So what were you responsible for? What was your job, this um, newfound, brilliant job? It was amazing. <laughs> um, I did all the shows and events, so all the kind of people-facing um, aspects of, of, of the magazine. So actually going out and meeting people, creating a physical representation of the things that the magazine did or the things the magazine believed in. Mm. So influencing people, for example, to grow their own or recycle more, um, you know, looking after trees, think about city farms, stuff like that. Um, and kind of getting people in, in, into gardening, as well as lots and lots of member events and reader events. Um, so it was and it, sort of tearing around the country. Like I said, I did 64 events over four years. Goodness. Uh, which was pretty heavy, but it was really, really exciting. I learned an awful lot about an awful lot of things, about design, about gardens, about gardener shows. I met a lot of people. Mm. When I left, I rang up everybody I knew and said, I'm free. <laughs> Have you got anything? So you, you, <clears throat> you left. Was that your decision? Was it the fact that you had made contacts, seen other things, and then could see a new direction how did how did you actually go to your next step and what was your next step I was ready to leave um I I I felt that I had been there for long enough and then they gave me a hand by amalgamating several jobs and then requiring that we should apply for them mm. or we could take voluntary redundancy right um and I did some sums I discovered that if they paid me to leave, then I'd be very happy, thank you very much, for, for a few months while I got myself on my feet. Right. Um, and I'm quite entrepreneurial. Um, I, I love setting up businesses and, 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 and you know, forging forwards and looking for the ne next new plan. Right. So I just jumped at it with both feet and, and became self-employed, self-employed gardening everything. And so what was your first significant job in this new world of being self-employed? I did some journalism. I, I, I started writing because that seemed like a sensible thing to do because that's something that I hadn't been doing so much on the magazine. Yeah, yeah. I was busy organising stuff. Yeah. I'd done some, um, but it wasn't my main role by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but what actually one of the first major things I did was rebuild a massive Hampton Court show garden as an educational resource. So it was the Growing Schools Garden, which must have been 2003. Okay. Um, so, 2003? Yes, I think so. Maybe I built it in 2004. No, 2003. And um, so it, it basically was shipped out of Hampton Court. And this is before we people necessarily thought about recycling show gardens into new sites. But it had been um, built in... Uh, in collaboration with um, the Department of Education mm. and they had a big site where they were talking about edu ed outdoors education in East London down at Eltham mm. and so it was being reiterated and there was a nice facility for um, for teaching and, and people could go along and they could actually experience all the growing elements so food and storytelling areas and art and uh, wildlife and they could these urban children could have this opportunity of, of um, learning outdoors and, and, and having an sort of environmental classroom. Um, so that was probably the first really big thing I did afterwards, and that was very, very satisfying. 
So that was around 2003. And am I right in saying your first book was the RHS Garden Explorer's Handbook? That's right, yes. And that was 2007. So how did that come about? I bumped into an RHS editor at the Garden Media Guild Awards. We got chatting at the bar and he said, ah, do you want to write a book? And I went, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I find talking to people is a very good way of doing things. (laughs) Yeah, networking is key. Not what you know, it's who you know. So how much had you written before then? You'd, you'd obviously written articles, I assume, in magazines? I, by or? that point, I was writing a lot, yeah, right. a lot, a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, it didn't take me very long to kind of get a real core of um, sort of magazine work going. And, you know, I have a lot of ideas, and I pitched the ideas, and if they came back with us a no, I pitched them on again, you know, very, very efficiently. Um, this is this entrepreneurial part of you coming to the fore? Yes, yes, very much so. So I've always run... Um, I don't consider myself freelance because um, that's not what I do. No. I, I create content and for a very, very long time, the majority of what I did was I thought about it, I might have photographed it and I took it to a magazine. And if they said no, I'd, I'd take it straight on to the next magazine until I sold it. You know, if I've got a good idea, then someone's going to buy it. So it's a case of just, wow. just um, chipping away. That determination to mm-hmm. get that. And... You're obviously very creative. Do you are there ideas bubbling through your mind continually? All the time, all the time. The, the challenge is getting them out fast enough. Yeah, and that's what I'm picking up <laughs> from you. So I can imagine, sort of like you go to bed and there's like the next book, the next magazine oh, article. I've got, I've got and... three in my head. So we'll <laughs> come on. Four. <laughs> come on to books more in a moment. So what I'm keen to try and understand is your first book back in 2007, The Garden Explorer's mm. Handbook your process of researching and writing how much has that changed in i think you're six seven books down the line now are you aware has that process changed a technology aside just your process of researching all books are different all books right. require a different technique i mean other than the the process of production which has similarities but even that can vary mm. um the garden explorer's handbook was an activity book for children um which uh, the RHS had to come up with the idea and they needed somebody to deliver it and that was a very very short turnaround so I had the conversation at the GMG Awards and it uh, was out by Chelsea so goodness because the Garden Media Guild Awards are November that's right so and Chelsea's in May I turned it around about eight weeks but it was lots and lots of little nuggety things but I've done a lot of things. I'd done this growing school's um, garden by that point. So there was lots and lots of sort of slushing information around there. Um, I, my background is scientific, mm, so, mm. I, so experiments, I could come with lots of those. And creative things. I mean, writing poetry about gardens and limericks. Um, it was just a lot of fun. It was just lots and lots and lots of ideas in bite-sized chunks. Um, and so, but which is obviously very different from writing some of my other books. I was going to say, so that was 2007. And am I right in saying the next book was Snowdrops correct, in yes. 2014? Yes. You're obviously passionate about Snowdrops. So how did that come about? Again, unexpectedly, because I, I had my, um, my orchard book was in my head by that point, and it was burning to get out, and I was sort of pushing it out there. And I sent it off to an editor, um, and they. So this is Snowdrops or the Orchard Odyssey? And Orchard uh, so I sent the Orchard Odyssey to to an editor. Would you right. like to buy this lovely book? Yeah. Um, and they came back with um, 
a lovely email no thanks um but do stay in touch because it's a really good idea and we like your style mm. um so maybe we can work together later and about again about three or four weeks later um, i picked a message on the answer phone it goes you know we'd like to do a book on snow rocks would you like to write it and we noticed that when you sent in your your idea you'd att- attached a snowdrop card so i'd done some articles on snowdrops so i'd photographed a lot of snowdrops um and my calling card as it was had a snowdrop on it and again it's like um yeah so <laughs> what this was timber press so yeah. it's like well yes of course i can write a book on snowdrops how do you want it to look <laughs> <laughs> so again that was it was immensely challenging because snowdrops are one of those slightly obsessive things that so had to be correct and had to be right but also had to be interesting and accessible so it's this wonderful journey of finding things out and then making sure you're absolutely right about things can we talk about that journey of finding things out? I mean, obviously you had a passion for snowdrops and you have a passion for snowdrops, but there is so much of information available at our fingertips. How do you ensure the accuracy of the information that you're putting out there? And how much time can you allow for research when generally you're going to be deadline driven? Well, it turns out that one knows more things about stuff than one thinks one does, if that makes any sense at all. Yes, I think um, I know where you're going you know, with if that, yeah. you, I, I always say about one of my other books, um, Dahlias, is that if you say, well, what do you know about Dahlias? You go, well, I know that they are tender, South American, and slugs like them. Mm. And then if you think about it a little bit more, you realise you know an awful lot more things about dahlias. Yeah. Um, you think about Aztecs, and you think about um, Collaret dahlias, and you think about spiky dahlias, and you think you remember somebody telling you they're edible. Mm. So yes. it's, it's, yeah. it starts off as a process of absolute brainstorming and just a kind of a, a, a media review, because a lot of the information is often repeated and repeated and repeated. So the trick then is to find something new or interesting, or find some way of saying something interesting and different um so you've got to find out you have to find your voice in relation to that thing and talking about finding your voice your books you you can hear your voice in your books now a couple of things there how long did it take you to find that voice and when you're writing for magazines sometimes they require you to have a different voice or a different style or do you just go in with naomi slade's voice and this is what i'm giving you um, I write the article that the, well, I do hope I write the article that the editor wants to receive. Mm. So if it needs to be in the third person, or if my voice needs to be passive or expert, then that's what I deliver. If I um, need to be Naomi Slade, garden writer, um, designer of things, writer of books, and general you know, all-round enthusiast, then that's what they get. So it's, you, you have to... These people are my clients, so yeah. the uh, the aim is always to deliver the thing that they ask for. Um, and for any budding journalist, if you write it to the right length and you deliver it on time, then you'll be in favour before you even start. And just touching on the research side of things again, you could, I guess, go on and on and on, but you have to know when the point of, that's enough, I've got to start writing now. With research, um, you could research things forever, but I always feel that if you have too much information, then it takes a lot longer to get it out, mm. get, get, actually get down on the page. Um, 
I mean, I can be talking to somebody terribly interesting for an interview, but after a while I'll terminate that interview or just go into an ordinary chat, because otherwise it'll take me twice as long to work out what it was that I was going to say, because I've got too much information. Yeah. I mean, it's a slightly different process for books, because they're very much bigger, but economy of verbiage is always quite important, I find. It's easy to have too many words. And now... Do you still pitch for work or do you have people coming to you saying, Naomi, I'd like you to write about... Well, both, both. If I find something that I find is very exciting, um, then I'll take it to an editor who I think will be interested. Um, And I like going to see very exciting things. I got bored one year and started uh, hammering around France to find exciting things to see whether I could get people to... um, to, to publish them in the UK because there's all sorts of things which are above and beyond and we mm. don't necessarily think about it. We tend to be quite introspective in our gardening but there are lots and lots of influences um, from, from from far beyond. Um, and also it's quite interesting um, trying to interview people in French. We haven't spoken for years. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I got bored. <laughs> um, so, I, I, yes... I tend to, th- I tend, if I'm interested in something, I think, well, how can I write about this then? Mm, mm. Um, if I want to write about a chateau, or if I want to write about Chemonceau International Garden Festival, I go and ha- along and have a look um, and see who might be interested. Uh, so, but, ver- but very often people do just get in touch and say, we'd like an article on such and such. Um, could you do it by Thursday week? Um, and I generally say, yes, that's fine. How long? How much? Do you ever? find yourself being conscious of trying to push yourself out of your comfort zone to try and learn something new I mean the books you've written we've dahlias hydrangeas lilies and lilacs next year are these plants that you have got a fair amount of knowledge of or have some of them required you to write I need to read I don't understand or I don't know lilacs I'm gonna have to start from scratch well you have to be very certain that that you really do know the things that you think you know yes so you you can't make assumptions from the outset. You can't just, you know, gaily write down what's in your head and post it off. You actually have to research it and back-research it and double-check whether the things that you've read are, in fact, accurate, or insofar as is absolutely possible. I mean, everybody from all corners of the globe can argue about things in all sorts of ways. Mm. I mean, is my expert more expert than somebody else's expert? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's quite an interesting discussion. Um, so... I suppose the way you go about it is 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 to create a framework and then fill that framework and then fill that framework with stuff that's interesting and factual or if it's a supposition you go and then it is thought that such and such you know it has always been considered that if you don't know there's no shame in saying you don't know and nobody knows Mm -hmm. um and because it's, it's it's a piece of work and it's supposed to inform and delight and amuse um and it doesn't have to be definitive. You know, you know, you're not writing the Holy Bible here. You're, you're writing the latest book on dahlias or the latest book on, on orchards. So, um, and, and I mean, it's it, it's very different because if only I mean, orchards, for example, I've got enormous experience of orchards. Um, I might have, obviously, I, I've known and grown dahlias and lilacs and whatnot um, a lot as well, but. Uh, one, one, one grows one's expertise accordingly and one of the absolute pleasures of doing what I do is finding something you don't know mm. very much about and exploring it 
know, really taking a deep dive. I love to do a plant profile because you find out things about plants there, their botany, their biology, their biochemistry. You know, dahlias aren't blue because the anthocyanin molecules are missing a hydroxyl group, for example. They're not evolved enough because blue is a, a very recently evolved colour, mm. um, sort of historically speaking. So you find things out that you've never even thought about, and that's just really cool. And looking back at the, at the books you've written, do you have a book that you look on and think, I love that book, it, for whatever reason? Is there a standout book for you because of the research involved or how it turned out? I'm fond of my Snowdrop book. I like it an awful lot. I'm very proud of how that turned out, given that it sort of dropped out of the sky and I hit the ground running and put out everything I could think of and everything else I could find out. And, mm. you know... And Snowdrops came out really late that year. But I love, love, love my Orchard book and Orchard Odyssey because that it's it's a passion project. It's um, an exercise in getting people to view orchards differently, not as something sepia-tinted and historic and something that used to exist once but doesn't. Because yeah. well, at the point when I wrote it, uh, everyone was like, oh, orchards, yeah, but there's something, you know, they're, they're gone, shame. It was lovely to have one. I could never have one. God, I don't know what about 13 trees in this garden, yeah. and they're all fruit trees. But mm. one, um, so if an orchard is five trees with crown edges not more than 200 meters apart, I've easily got an orchard in this tiny space. So, and there are street trees like mulberries and walnuts that produce fruit. Uh, we, you know, we, as we walk around town, we, we walk past a cherry plum, we can pass a mulberry, we can pass a fig. So, the concept of orchard I felt needed repurposing and updating for the way we live now not necessarily in big gardens or even necessarily in small gardens people who have only have windowsills or balconies can enjoy um just incidental fruit along the along the hedgerows and the waysides you go a walk and that confidence because when i was growing up people didn't seem very attached to fruit mm. they didn't seem you know is this a cherry i don't know it might be poisonous let's not eat it and it's like well of course it's a cherry it's growing on a cherry tree why can you not see this yeah yeah um so it's it's slightly evangelistic in many ways because I, I really want people to love and appreciate fruit as much as I do and understand it and know it and want it, and cherish it. And I think in talking to you now, the passion, you know, I can't wait to go out and sort of look at, look at these books because you put it away in a cross and repurposing so people can think about orchards in a different way. We, we have this preconception about what orchards were Yes, you say you've got a number of trees here in your garden, so it's just getting people to think outside of the box and and reinvigorate their passion. Absolutely, it's all about passion, isn't it? Yeah, and you I know, think that's what's so clear. I can feel your passion. I can see it on your face. It's just lovely to to see that and to hear that. A book, obviously, it's not just about the words. Um, you've worked with photographer Georgiana Lane yes. on a number of your books. How did that relationship come about? And how do you work together? Do you have a clear vision on how you want the book to look? Or do you say to Georgiana, what do you think? Well, how it came about was uh, when I was invited to write Dahlias, she was already um, attached to the series. She'd done a couple of the previous, uh, previous books. And the way it works is incredibly well. Um, we are, you know two sides of the same coin mm. so uh, do I tell her what to do well no no um, she is very much in charge of the visual but I we work 
we collaborate very, very closely on what we actually photograph, what varieties, what are the best varieties. So I look at the cultivars and I look at the species um, and I work out what's possible and available. I mean, these books are international. Mm. Um, mm. Hydrangeas, I think it was, was, has been translated into Chinese. Um, and you know it's, they're available in Australia and in America. So getting something which you can only get in Somerset um, isn't really, you know, unless it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, it needs to have a, a universal appeal yes. and relevance. Because you know you can always go or try this one, which might might be available where you are. So choosing the varieties is something I'm very, very heavily involved in, and the intellectual content in terms of the the, the history and the, the um, horticulture and all those sorts of things but we're in constant com um, conversation constant you know do we do this one do we do that one I've got all these wonderful things that's brilliant let's choose those those, those ten yeah so it's, it's very very much a collaboration we said earlier you have a number of ideas buzzing around your head do you have any other sort of like burning projects you'd like to put pen to paper on and do you put pen to paper are you all computer based and we talked about garden design earlier you do hand-drawn garden yes, design yes. Uh, how do you write there's so much technology available today as well um well, when i interview i just write masses and masses of almost illegible notes um longhand so i have to tell people to stop for breath because i need to catch up sometimes when i'm writing books i sort of collate the information online that's very much less sort of pencil in hand and very much more um, straight onto the screen so I tend to find stuff and read through stuff digest stuff and then I create a framework then I refine the framework then I fill in the gaps in the framework mm -hmm. um, and then I make it sound really interesting then I make it sound really coherent so it's a sort of a, an a iterative process we live in a, a world today very sort of social media driven people look at images on Instagram and there's this swipe mentality we just look at images as a writer is that something you are mindful of does it worry you or do you think there is still um, an audience who will sit down with a I mean I love a hard copy book I just think going forward as a writer are you aware of this t this mentality of looking at images and swiping through that's an interesting question it's a compound question so when i started doing social media i chose twitter because i'm good with words mm. um the fact is is that even on twitter if you post a picture you'll get a far higher uptake than if you just post a comment um so you know i i have mix and match i mean i only ever post stuff that's lovely you know, I'm not. I'm not in this world to cause pain and and, and, and anguish. Um, that's not what I'm what, what I'm about at all. Um, so posting nice things, giving something for people pretty pretty to look at, mm. or, or a little a little bit of information about about something, or you know, I posted something with a beautiful blue butterfly on one of my yellow heliniums. Um, and you know, it's like one of the successful winning things, but yeah, it's yeah. very relatable. You know, I don't do it in order to seem clever or well-informed um, more recently I started Instagram in many ways it is a visual platform mm. but also the opportunity to say more is there as well so you can actually have a little um, a little bit more leeway to say things but also one of my sort of lockdown projects was to, to uh, 
create an online shop so that I could sell all my books from my website, um, which is naomidearslade.com forward slash shop if anybody's interested. <laughs> um, so I actually, as, as a promotional platform, that's very useful. Um, I'm there professionally um, just to talk about gardening. Mm. How, how important is the social media side of things to you? Um, it's not my first love. <laughs> no. I like a hard copy book rather like yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and people have been telling me now for about 15 years that the magazine is dead and the books are no more. I see no... I mean, yes, other forms of media have, have risen, um, but they haven't supplanted garden media. I mean, it may be... It may be a niche area, mm. but there's nothing quite like holding a book, reading a book in the bath, reading a book in bed on a dark winter's night when you can't get out and garden. Armchair gardening really is a thing. And yeah. I think those who declare that gardening is going to go absolutely online have clearly never tried to hold an iPhone in the rain taking lots and lots of photographs. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I went, when I upgraded my phone, I picked one with waterproof function <laughs> because it's going to get wet. <laughs> so, you know, it's useful to stand in the garden and, and double check something um, on, on a search engine. But I think, I hope, I yes, trust, yes. I feel that books are going to be important and relevant for some time yet. And I want to write more, you know, I'd like to publish a novel. I've got like, lots of other ideas in my head. I've got, um, so it's all going on. Pick it, I mean, you talk about a novel, any ideas? Do, again, do you sort of, is there a need to almost step slightly aside from the horticultural gardening arena occasionally to think, well, but actually I'd like to try and write about something else? Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you when I when, when, when I sold it and it's on the way out. So uh, it's 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 it. We talk about passion projects. We talk about doing different things. Um, I I've got. I'm very tenacious. I like to follow things through. Um, I like to do lots of different things. Um, but that's also married with having quite a low boredom threshold. Right, so I like yeah. to do stuff that's different. I said I got bored and went to France so I could you know, talk to gardeners in French. And they were like, Zitello, what is this ridiculousness? <laughs> um, and then it turns out that if you speak um, botanical Latin in a French accent, all of a sudden it turns out you do know things. You do have a common language, but that language yeah. is Latin. So that was fun. So aside from the writing and garden design, you're also a broadcaster, TV, radio appearances, speaking going to talks was this something were those things on your radar when you first set out or are these things that have come along as part of the package of being Naomi Slade both 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 um so I was a bit taken aback when I was first asked to do a gardening talk but off I rocked and did a gardening talk um I've always been very comfortable doing radio I like I like radio um and podcasts and the spoken word so it doesn't worry me so I've done really quite a lot of that. Um, TV broadcast, you know, it's one of those things that one one wants to try, one has to try if one's in the media. You know, why why limit yourself to one medium? Um, and, you know, I've been on Garden as well, talking about snowdrops and various mm. things. I've not done a lot of telly. No. But uh, one of my early ambitions was maybe one day they'd let me present some coverage on Chelsea Flower Show. So, you know, it's not something I'm wildly pursuing, but, you know, maybe one day the phone will ring and... Uh, then I will suit and boot and 
give it my best. For for any aspiring garden writers out there, do you think you need to think just beyond writing to be able to make it work as a as a viable living? Do you need to think I can't just be a writer? I do need to consider being a broadcaster, being a designer. My advice for aspiring garden writers or aspiring garden journalists is do what you're good at to start with do what you're interested in you know you 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 can't be anybody other than yourself you Mm. can push yourself into new areas you can develop new skills but you may find it very easy to talk to people or you may not find it very easy to talk to people. You may enjoy being on social media, or you may not. Yeah. You may hate yourself in, in, in photographs, or you know, you, you may be sort of wandering around with a you know, bunch of dahlias um, give, giving it the big hurrahs. And it's, you, need, you, need, you do need a portfolio to create to a certain degree, but it depends how economically viable you need it to be. I mean, it is my full-time career. It's almost all I do. Mm. Um, established I do a lot of things <laughs> but yes. um, we I th- I, if, if what you want to do is write then start off by writing you'll probably find after a while as you gain confidence and experience and notoriety or fame depending on how you want to look at it <laughs> um, the mission creep will occur and somebody will ask you to write this or design that or create this I mean not very many people in gardening you know so-and-so is a nursery person, but they design gardens and maybe have a little column. Mm, mm. Um, so, I mean, as a, as a sector, it lends itself to the portfolio career. But for people who have just started, who, who want to give it a go, get stuck in, have some ideas, pitch those ideas, talk to people, make those contacts. Give, give it a go and, 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 and don't, don't get downhearted. You mentioned just a moment ago it would be lovely to present part of the Chelsea Flower Show. Do you have any other, are there any other goals on your checklist, things that you would really like to do in any of the fields that we've talked about? Well, I don't, I don't see that it's wrong to have a big ambition. No, not at all. I think, you know, if you're going to dream, dream big. So what's the biggest you've got? Well, Chelsea Flower Show, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd like to design a garden at Chaumont sur National Garden Festival because that's a really interesting one because it starts in the spring and it runs straight through to, I think, end of October mm. now. So there's a, there's, it's different from creating an art installation like a British show which runs for a week or even less than a week. Yeah. Um, you actually have to keep it looking good or evolving over a almost a six-month period. So that, that, that's a challenge. We're not quite there yet, and I'm not quite sure how that, what's going to happen, but never say never. Um, other writing projects? Um, it would be lovely to publish a novel. Um, it would be lovely to publish three. <laughs> 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 um, and, but it's been, it's been a very, very busy lockdown for me. I've done a lot of writing, um, a lot of people have been interested and it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to inform new gardeners, returning gardeners, mm. um, interested people who have suddenly realised they can do a whole range of things um, which they never really thought about before. And the enthusiasm and being able to sort of almost coach people to gardening success yeah it's lovely when people go i've just grown this it's brilliant Mm. um that's that's just so enjoyable and to even be a small part of that's great and finally before we finish we've both been to the chelsea flower show the first autumn september chelsea flower show 
What were your thoughts on going back to Chelsea after lockdown? Gosh, once I got over the shock of getting on the train <laughs> and the tube and out at all, yes. uh, it was lovely, actually. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was a brave and different move to have it in the autumn. Mm. Um, and it didn't feel quite as I anticipated it would, but then in some ways it wouldn't have done. I mean, it's experimental. It There were, there were late, late changes which make sourcing plants more difficult yeah so so various designs had to be evolved um but i like the fact there were other plants to look at um it was interesting since i last went to a big garden show in the absolute explosion of house plants was wonderful and succulents and things like that um i mean you could say it would be it could have been more gloriously seasonal mm. which is true mm. yes but only i think if you'd set out 18 months ago to do something gloriously seasonal for this thing and nobody knew even when it was moved whether it would be cancelled or not I and mean, nobody could possibly have done mm. and they're talking about having chelsea flower show again next may so there's given the the the, the 18 months we've had actually keeping our Keeping our powder dry to a certain degree is yeah. quite important. We all need to conserve our stamina because um, many, many colleagues have been working extremely hard and nobody wants to burn out when there are still excitable new gardeners to entertain. So I thought Chelsea was lovely. I think it did very, very well under the circumstances. It was it, lovely just walking back in the showground again. It yeah, it gave wonderful. me a real lift. I mean, it was quieter. It was subdued. It was thoughtful. I thought yeah. it was thoughtful. Um, I came away not overexcited and sort of, sort of vigorous and jumping around. I came away going, well, that, that was that was interesting. That was interesting for a whole range of reasons I wasn't expecting. Mm, and in some mm. ways, that's good because delivering on expectations is one thing. Yeah. But creating a whole new sort of, I mean, it's a whole new genre really for that that scale in autumn. So. I th I, I, it was lovely to be back there um, and I, I was glad I was able to go. Naomi, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure sat here in the sun in your <laughs> beautifully immersive garden. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, what a wonderful insight into the world of a garden writer, garden designer and garden broadcaster. And you can see and read more about Naomi's garden in her fortnightly garden news column. And do check out her website, naomislade.com, for book purchases and much more. Thanks, as always, to all of you who listen and for making my podcast the most enjoyable experience for me. I love doing this and bringing you the very best gardening personalities each week. As always, don't forget to subscribe as there's loads more to come still. And do tell all of your gardening friends about it. And if you listen via Apple Podcasts, it would be just great if you could leave a review to help others find us. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.